This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Roman is present. However, <clears throat> I'm, I think I identify as the official grad wizard of the alt-right, South African branch. Well, I'm the uh, official Jew of the alt-right. Or treasurer, <laughs> I would think. Yes, there's, there's that latent anti-Semitism. I mean, are Jews allowed in, we, in we, the alt-right? Are Jews allowed? I mean, we still need to uh, speak to stakeholders and uh, yes. look at the processes. We do need to get hold of certain alt-right members in the U.S. Are hard to track down. Well, no, you just go to Fortan. They're all right there. We just need to up our meme meme game. Yeah. So, according to Varashni, Varashni, um, it's got a very white surname. What is it again? Hutchinson. Yes, that's it. According to Varashni Hutchinson, former editor of the Huffington Post and Mail and Guardian, uh, and Mail and Guardian, um, we are the alt right, the alt right in South Africa, apparently, because we disagree with her. Um, in fact, we don't actually disagree with her. That's a weird thing. No, I don't think what she wrote or the blog that she endorsed was hate speech. Yeah. We, and we, we said so numerous times. So we, in her little um, inquiry or, or whatever it, it could, would be called, her case, we, we're on her side. We, we're trying to be like white allies here to the social justice cause. And then she still like calls us alt-right. I mean, really, ungrateful is what I say. How was sitting in court for, or I suppose a pseudo court for an afternoon with a whole bunch of white men, rich white men berating white privilege? How was that? Quite, quite infuriating. I actually just wanted to stand up and say, you're all rich white men here talking about white privilege. Why don't you just remove yourself and let a POC take your place? Like, why don't you do that? But I couldn't, obviously. I would have been arrested, I suppose. <laughs> Can they arrest you? Do they have that power? Well, now I'm a member of the alt-right. We have more power than ever. Well, on that note, mm. all our power, let's discuss some movements politically overseas. We've right. discussed it before. So we've got a, a member of the English alt-right in the studio. <laughs> well, I don't know He's yet. He's going to deny that. Right. Vociferously. Right, Simon, welcome to the show. We've got Simon. Great to be here. Simon Gordon in the show, on the show. Um, do you want to tell our audience a bit about you? Um, up till the general election in a couple of months ago, I was working for Douglas Carswell, who was the only MP in that parliament for the UK Independence Party and a member of Vote Leave, which was the official organization designated by the Electoral Commission to campaign for Brexit. You're not making a good case against the alt-right thing so far. So far, you, you're losing. You're losing. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know if I would define myself like that. <laughs> no, sure. But it's not about defining yourself. It's about what other people say about you. Indeed. That's how you get defined, Simon. Yes, it's how they malign you. Right. So so Brexit, I mean, a small issue at the end of the day uh, when it happened. Uh, we weren't too worried about it. Um, well, we, we were quite pro-Brexit. We thought it would happen. Obviously, the polls said it wouldn't, and we were like, no, we're pretty sure it will. Uh, so we were quite chuffed with that. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the history? Because I think for most people, it really starts, you know, last year, the year before. Uh, but actually, you've got this sort of encroaching EU body over decades, which kind of led to Brexit. Yeah, the, the story of um, European political union begins back in the 50s, but uh, Britain didn't join until the early 1970s. Mm. And there was a referendum in 1975, 
on whether to stay in the union that had been joined without democratic consent or whether to leave. Um, and that was framed as a trading relationship at the time. It was the EEC, um, European Economic Community. So, um, and that I think is how British people have always seen it. And I think to understand Brexit, you have to appreciate that no one in Britain really wants to go into a political union. And yet over the years, that's what the European Union has become. It has all the trappings of a state as its own president, has a parliament, council of ministers, um, has its own uh, effectively foreign secretary, has a foreign policy spokesperson. Um, and it also regulates for the for the continent. So product regulations, mm. everything from the environment to fisheries, agriculture, which is vastly subsidized. Um, so it actually has a huge amount of regulatory power, all of which is with very, very limited democratic consent. And um, they want to establish a military as far as I understand. Uh, that has been discussed, yeah. So total control. So it's a proto multinational states in essence well the, the direction of travel is seems to be towards a super state yes i mean it has its own currency for those that are part of the of the eurozone mm. which is why it would make it very very difficult for a country that was within the eurozone to do what britain has done right so but the EU is not all bad though i mean they also have good things i mean when i travel europe on my eu passport it's quite nice just to drive between various countries without worrying too much about border posts i suppose that's one positive thing. Um, well, it's, it's positive for, uh, I suppose it's, it's, it is convenient for tourists. It's also convenient for terrorists. I mean, um, you know, you can't tell them apart sometimes. Well, that, that's part of the issue. You can't do the border checks to do so. But I mean, the, um, the terror attacks in France last year, for example, I mean, there was a lot of coordination, um, from Molenbeek in Brussels. Right. Um, so that kind of network is easier when there are no border controls. And of course that spans an entire, an entire continent pretty much. And when there are migrant flows from um, North Africa through Italy, uh, that means you know, as soon as you're in Italy, you can make it through to Calais. Um, and that to a certain extent encourages the flow. It enables the, enables the flow of migrants. And it's not clear that the continent has any idea how to deal with that. I mean, it, Demonstrative so, so far has no idea. But. Yes. I mean, we'll get to immigration a bit later, but I just want to know from you, um, when you campaign for Brexit, what were the, 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 the main issues at play? Like, what did you think the electorate will want to know about the EU that maybe they weren't aware of or they were aware of, but they thought it was quite benign, but perhaps very important? Yeah, the, the biggest issue in the campaign for Vote Leave, which was the official campaigning organization, um, was sovereignty, and that was framed as control. So the slogan we used was take back control. Um, and that proved popular because people don't really want to be governed either by a government which, you know, they haven't given consent to, or actually by a government which is in a foreign country doesn't necessarily have their best interests at heart. Um, immigration was also a concern. Um, the, the economy was a concern, but the way it was framed, um, didn't seem like it was economics to the, uh, other campaign, to the Remain campaign. So it was framed as, you know, we send a certain amount of money to the EU every week, £350 million gross per week. Imagine if we spent that money here on our public services. And you can say, well, you know, if you're a libertarian, I, I would define myself as a libertarian, you know, rather than alt-right. But, um, you know, would you necessarily want to take that money and spend it on, um, say, the National Health Service without any kind of reform, without thinking, well, maybe, we, you know, maybe, maybe it could be tax cuts, maybe it could be anything else. But I think the point is anyone would agree that, you know, it's not worth giving to the European Commission in order that it can spend it on lavish new buildings and um, pretty lavish salaries for its own employees. 
So what has the EU done for Britain in the past a few decades that have been beneficial? I mean, there has to be some sort of well, the, merit to the existence. The reason that Britain joined um, was to have free trade with Europe. And hopefully, pending the results of the negotiations, we will still have free trade with Europe after Brexit. So that the question is, you know, is political union necessary for trade? I mean, you'd say, no, we don't need we trade with the United States. We don't have political union yeah. with the United States. Switzerland um, is not part of the EU. No, but Switzerland, um, Switzerland has so many bilateral agreements with the EU yes. that it's difficult to, I, they, I, to a certain extent they have surrendered, surrendered sovereignty as well. So I think what Britain is aiming for in these negotiations, in the Brexit negotiations, is a deal somewhere between Canada and Switzerland. Okay. So still their own country, but. Mm. But, but not, not to your, to your question. I mean, but basically the, the benefit for Britain is about trade, but it's questionable to what extent we needed to be part of the European Union in, in order to get a, the, the trading relationship that we wanted. Um, and you also have to compare uh, Britain in the 1970s to Britain today. I mean, Britain was the sick man of Europe in the 1970s. You know, there were you know the three-day week and you know strikes, um, industrial decline. And looking across the Channel, you know, Europe seemed to be pretty prosperous. But that's kind of reversed with the eurozone crisis. Not that Britain doesn't have its own serious economic problems, um, but the eurozone doesn't look particularly uh, prosperous at the moment. And Britain's uh, trade with the rest of the world has increased relative to Britain's exports to the rest of the world are now greater than its exports to the EU. And that, that's something that's happened over the past 15 years, pretty much. It's now a majority of Britain's exports go to non-EU countries. In terms of the regulations that a body like the EU would, would set up, is it even possible in your mind, you said you're a libertarian, but is it even if you try to imagine possible that a centralized government like that could act in the best interests of uh, any country, because it would seem to me that if you make fishing rules, uh, legislation, regulations, whatever it happens to be for Italy, that uh, may work very well for Italy and may have been done with all the best of intentions. We've discussed intentions on the show before. It may have been done with all the best intentions for Italy, but the effect in Britain may be completely opposite. Uh, and I do understand that there were some some examples like that in things like, like yeah, there's, there's quite a good example. I think would be um, ports. So there's something called the Port Services Regulation. I don't know how technically we want to yeah, be technical. Well, see how, we got see we got how much very, um, technical detail I can remember. Very intelligent listeners, so go for it. Um, so the Port Services Regulation uh, intends to create internal competition for services within ports, and it's really designed for big state-owned ports in Europe. But Britain's ports ports are mostly smaller and privately owned. And if you impose um, competition on these if, in services within these ports, then you destroy their economies of scale. So that's one that's one example of a regulation that doesn't really work for for every country in uh, in the EU. It's also not really it's not really necessary. And I think I think the, the the basic question is why do you need a single regulatory system in order to permit trade? Yeah. I, I'm just I'm trying to get to you know if if there's a listener who feels we're wrong on Brexit, who feels no. We really should be moving towards something like the EU. Uh, they will have been told all the things that the Remain side has told them, which is uh, the EU came about after World War II. It was a way of keeping peace and stability in the European Union. It succeeded at doing that. Did it? Uh, well, I'm saying – I actually think that is the um, – if you were to make an argument for the EU – which, by the way, the Remain campaign never really did. All they said was that it would be too expensive to leave. <laughs> yes. um, they never and, actually and, advanced and a positive argument, which is, which is part of the reason why they lost. Mm. Um, but uh, if you were to make a case for the EU, uh, the, the case that I think would play best 
in continental Europe is the one about peace. And I, I, I don't really think that holds up either, considering that half of Europe was at war with the other half for most of the period from the end of the Second World War through to the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. So Europe, took, Europe was divided against itself then. And what, what united Western Europe was opposition to the Soviet Union. Yeah, and it took sort of outside European influence to assist yeah. in that process anyway. And not all European countries were actually unified in that effort, particularly France with its kind of non-aligned third way thing. <laughs> sure. All right. So that's the that's the one argument. The peace is the one argument. The other one was the economic argument. The it's too expensive, as you mentioned. Uh what do you what do you make of that? There there's been sort of conflicting uh data since and conflicting interpretations of the data since. So people mm. will say, for example, the FTSE's gone up and they'll go, yes, it's gone up because the pound's gone down. Yeah, I mean, the, the economic data in Britain has been much as it was in 2016. What was predicted by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who was a leading voice in the Remain campaign, um, was a contraction in GDP of about 3.6%, which would be in a recession, unemployment going up, markets falling, foreign direct investment falling, um, but really, none of that's happened. I mean, you know, growth this year, I think it's about 1.7%. It's not great. It's about the same as it was last year. Um, and I think that's because, you know, well, A, markets haven't really been been spooked by this. It's certainly not true that um, confidence is plummeting. If you look at the, um, it's called the uh, Manufacturers Purch- uh, Purchasing Index, which tracks um, demand for manufactured products in the UK, that's, uh, I think, the most recent figures, it's 55, which apparently is, you know, best good. for a long time. It's, it's, it's good. Yeah. Um and I think, you know, the the fundamental economic problems in Britain aren't necessarily linked to Brexit. I mean, the big problem is consumer credit. It's interest rates that are far too low, an economy that is sustained with far too much borrowing. Um, but in terms of the European Union, you know, there are opportunities to be gained from potentially from deregulating and also from leaving the customs union and signing free trade agreements with other countries in the world, and also just not having to impose tariffs at all. So we, we, we could have no tariffs whatsoever on imports, which would make, say, food prices, wine prices a lot cheaper than they are now. Okay, so cool. We've gone through peace uh, as the one excuse. We've gone through the economy as the other excuse. And then... No, the third excuse, if I may. Sorry, yes. People are just too stupid to know what, what was actually <laughs> being said. And they were duped by people like you, Simon, who wrote these grand speeches about sovereignty and hating Arabs. Uh, that people were just duped. They didn't know what they were doing. So we need a second Brexit, a second referendum, rather, to get to get. Uh, yeah, I mean, what's, what's remarkable result. is that um, uh, pro-Remain people still make that argument, and they don't realise that it was because they were making that argument during the campaign. That can know, we call them Ramon, please? Yeah, like, the Ramoners. The Ramoners. Yeah, it's a, it's a better title. So they seem to be oblivious to the fact that people don't like to be called idiots when yeah, they ama- I mean, made a conscious decision to put an X in a you, box. if you condescend to people and you patronize them and you tell them that they're morons, then they, they don't tend to support you. I mean, Yeah, uh, Ramon brings the point of calling people dolts in terms of voting for the Brexit. But I, I think it, was, it goes a step further than that. And, and you know, with you being involved somewhat in the UKIP side of things – uh, or certainly with one of the MPs for UKIP, you can perhaps shed more light on this, which is once you go to the actual arguments and those arguments sort of fall flat, the econ- economic argument, the peace argument, uh, the you have to be part of this union from a legislation or regulation perspective, they then turn to the inevitable sort of argument 
or it's not even an argument, it's an ad hominem, which is you're bigots. You, you're just bigots. Uh, we, we know, for example, there was that one poster, which was put up that, that, that sort of now infamous poster. Yeah. Uh, with the, uh, sort of thousands of people streaming in through some border post, I assume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it essentially kind of said, look, is this what, I don't know. Breaking point. Breaking point. That was it. All right. So, but yeah. it made the point that so essentially. Nigel Farage, who was the leader of UKIP, posed in front of this poster. And on the same day, um, a Labour MP called Joe Cox was murdered in her constituency. And it took, I think it was less than 24 hours for the connection, for the blame in effect, implicitly or explicitly, to be put on Nigel Farage for that, which I, it's clearly, I mean. There's no, there's no link. It's not, it's not that there's no link. I mean, it's kind of, it's outrageous opportunism. I mean, really, that is, it's, it's, oh, right. that is gutter politics. But I mean, I think, you know, I would say a couple of things about that poster. One is that I don't think it, that it helped the Leave campaign. I mean, I think, you know, the reason why it was exploited by the Remain campaign is because they knew they could do damage with it. He also wasn't, um, Nigel Farage wasn't part of the official Leave campaign. And I think that's important. Um, the immigration issue was always going to be a factor in the campaign because, um, being part of the European Union means that uh, Britain cannot control the number of people who come in to live legally from the European Union. Um, what What is that? Just do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? Freedom of movement is one of the four core principles of the European Union. So there's um, freedom of movement uh, of people, free movement of capital, free movement of services, free movement of goods. Free movement of services doesn't actually really exist, as far as I understand it. The single market and services have never really been completed. But mm. free movement of people happens, and particularly... Um, uh, in Britain, which never um, put any kind of moratorium on immigration from Eastern Europe in the early years, certainly for, for um, uh, from the EU, from Poland, from the Czech Republic. I can't remember. It's the EU, it was eight or six. I, I kind of. But um, yeah. uh, so there has been large-scale immigration from those countries, mostly to work, and not everybody would stay, um, which is separate to the large-scale mass immigration that Britain has had from non-EU countries, which has also been. Um, in large numbers, which you, you can't really blame on the European Union. I mean, <laughs> but, um, the, insofar as this relates to Brexit, um, anyone who was concerned about immigration was going to vote leave anyway. And the, the challenge for the official campaign was to broaden the argument in order to get a majority of the people. So had Nigel Farage been running the campaign, had he been the face of it throughout, I don't believe that he could have built a broad enough coalition. And th- this is what made him f- furious during the campaign, but I'm, I'm afraid I just think it's, it is true. He's not a he's he's not a popular or he's too polarizing as a character. Yeah, I, ultimately, that you know maybe he can. I mean, UKIP got about thirteen percent of the vote um, in the twenty fifteen election. In the European election the previous year, I think they got almost thirty percent of the vote, so they they won that. But to win the referendum, you need over fifty percent of the vote. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence that he was enough to appeal to such a large large segment of the of the population. To a majority of the of, of the electorate, and I think he he wasn't really willing to broaden the message, um, so it wasn't all about immigration. And and what about someone like David Cameron? What what was his reasoning for being a on the Remain camp? I can answer this. Mm-hmm. It's because we'll be stronger. Fuck, what's the other one? Stronger, better, and wealthier off or something better off in the EU. He said that about five times in every single interview. Well, it's, it's it's curious. I mean. David Cameron, uh, when he came to the Tory leadership in 2005, one of the things he wanted to do was to stop banging on about Europe. That's a, that's a, that was the quote, I think. 
Um, so it's somewhat ironic, maybe inevitable, that it would be Europe that would bring him down. Um, but I think there are several reasons why um, he was on the Remain side. One is that he kind of, he staked his reputation on going to the EU um, in 2015-2016 after the election in order to try and renegotiate our terms of membership and came back with something that was that was totally inconsequential, that really didn't change anything at all, um, which is basically an emergency break on migration, um, which in any event the EU had the power to control, so it wasn't really a break at all. But I think he fell into the trap of thinking that it was all about migration. If you solved that issue, then you could diffuse um, your scepticism, which I think was also also wrong but i think what once he'd staked his reputation on that i don't think there was any way he could go back and say well actually you know i'm going to reject the deal that i came to because i think that would have made him look a fool and i also think he's just he's part of that kind of you know he called himself the heir to blair i don't think he's as much as a europhile as tony blair was but it, it's it's hard to envisage him and the kind of with the people that he associates with yeah he's, he's one of the elites so going along well, with europe is kind of what you do it's kind of this you know soft conservative kind of compassionate conservatism all around um, doesn't really want to be dealing with the european question whether he really thinks the european union is a positive force i don't know but he certainly seemed to think that there wasn't anything to be gained from leaving it or maybe that he didn't want to be associated i think maybe it's more that he didn't want to be associated with the kind of people who wanted to leave so let's talk about those people who wanted to leave namely the party that you used to work for ukip so the uk independence party um not on the side of the of the ocean, we don't hear too much about it. But I've I've I've, I've done my research. Um, so it's the the whole mandate of the party was leave the EU. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, Nigel Farage has been banging on for I don't know how many decades. When did it actually start the UKIP as a party? Um, in the nineteen nineties, right? And <clears throat> ever and uh, ever since then, it's been about get out of the EU at all costs. Yeah. For what reason? Originally, not so much at Brexit, but originally, what didn't they like about it? Because it's a sort of nationalist party. Um, I don't know if that's quite right. I mean, I think, I, I think the fundamental issue for UKIP at the outset was was sovereignty, right? Or nationalism? I mean, either word. I, I don't think nationalism and sovereignty are necessarily the same oh, thing. Yes. They, they didn't want Britain to be part of a European superstate, which yes. is not to say. I, I think. Yeah, they wanted the, restora- the restoration of the British nation-state. You can have a civic conception of sure. of nationalism. I, I don't think UKIP ever had an ethnic conception of nationalism. Right. I mean, the difference between sovereignty and nationalism is that um, if you want, to, if you have to get screwed, at least it's by your own government in a way, not by the not by the EU government. Yeah, I think that I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, part of it, I think that the way that say, in the campaign it was framed, was very much a kind of classical liberal argument about democracy and control and accountability. Um, but I think a lot of it is that people didn't want to be governed by foreigners. I think that's true. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's perfectly reasonable. Well, that's just, that's framing, right? So you can say people don't want to be governed by foreigners, and you can equally say people don't want to be governed by someone who's sitting in Brussels, which... Which is a foreigner. It's a, yeah, it's the same thing, but it, to me the latter sounds... Uh, perfectly reasonable. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think the problem is is the Remain camp likes to twist things a lot uh, so that they sound bad. So I don't want to be governed by foreigners. Just sounds like you're xenophobic, right? I don't want to be governed by someone I don't even know, have never met, uh, or couldn't have the opportunity to meet. Uh, 
doesn't live in my country and suffer the same uh, sort of results of the laws they pass as I do, that's a perfectly reasonable position to hold. Yeah, and on the on the country, on the cultural side, people have concept of national identity, and yes. you know that there was a very strong sense that the EU ideally wanted to erode that. Certainly, in in the minds of the of the kind of technocrats at the Commission, they would like everybody to identify as as European. So, so they, the, so that the EU would ultimately come to supersede the um, the nation states of Europe. Yes, no, uh, yeah, that, that's that's a reasonable assumption. So for UKIP itself, who who were the the voters roughly? If there was a median voter for UKIP, was it the the average working class who was disillusioned with Labour, or was it? Well, it's um it's an interesting question. Initially, UKIP was seen as being a threat to the Conservatives. It was seen as being to the right of the Conservatives. Nigel Farage was openly a Thatcherite, so it wasn't only about the EU. Um, and it was a, it's a constitutionally libertarian party. So initially, the kind of voters that they expected to kind of prize away were dis, uh, Tories who were disillusioned with the kind of soft right um, leadership of David Cameron, I think. That's when UKIP was kind of gaining in support in the uh, later years of the, of the, um, of the, the noughties. Um, but it transpired that UKIP was actually um, gaining votes from the working classes in a higher percentage than the other party. So a higher percentage of the UKIP vote was working class, a right. white working class, than any other party. Um, so ultimately, they decided to campaign on Labour's territory. And I think that's part of what inspired a shift in tone that was much more focused on, on immigration. Yeah, because it was in, in – when was Cameron re-elected? What year was that, Twenty. Um, so it was election in 2010. That's when he became prime minister. And then he was re-elected again. Well, uh, then he won 2015, majority. he won an outright majority, just. And UKIP was the third largest party in that election, uh, wasn't it? Not in terms of seats, but in terms of votes. In terms of actual votes. Because it's first past the post. Or, yes. Or, yeah. Can you just explain that? Um, so first past the post means uh, you vote in a particular constituency. So there are geographical constituencies across the party and um, – Whoever gets the largest number of votes in each constituency has the then sits in parliament as the as the member for that constituency. So what's the moaning about then? About first past the post. Yes. Um, well, it's say a party like UKIP can get um, 3.9 million votes. I think it was in 2015, and only one member of parliament because there was only one seat where they actually got, where they the, got the majority of, of votes. So their votes were were, were were too spread out. But I, I think very few people in Britain would want to lose the constituency link completely even though people would want some kind of more proportional representation. Because I guess people, people wouldn't want to go to a party list system because mm. of all the – it's not really more democratic. Yeah. This way you can actually – you know who the person representing your constituency is. There's a, yeah, I mean I think, there are, I think there, are, there are a couple of things about it. One is that um, if there's a particular national issue that disproportionately affects your constituency, then you have someone to go to. Um, the second one is on a party list system – Essentially, everybody's chosen by party leader or by party national executive, and you have no idea when you're voting who's going to sit in parliament and claim to represent you. It sounds frightfully like our country, Jonathan. Oh, wait, it is our country. <laughs> I have no idea who sits in parliament. Uh, yeah, well, at all. yes. Um, okay, so I just want to get back to the immigration thing because I think that it was quite controversial. I still feel like there's a lot of misrepresentation in terms of people who – are either for or against. In this case, usually it's against. And it's often very difficult to understand the 
decisions made around something as controversial as as immigration. So in South Africa, we've you know we've got immigration issues as well, um, and they're very complex because we've got immigrants who come to South Africa who are very hardworking people, and then there's um, claims around immigrants being part of our crime community, and there's xenophobic attacks. So it's it's a quite a complex and layered situation, and I would imagine that. Uh, it's not just the idea of people coming through the border that, that most individuals react to. It's the 10, 15 years later, or, or maybe sooner, in the case of terrorism, for example, that, that tends to, to make a big impact quicker, uh, that, that people are generally reacting to. So you live there. Can you give us a sense of, of why people react the way they do to immigration? Um, well, I would say about Britain, I mean, the pace of change in terms of the demographic makeup of Britain has been very, very quick. So I actually think, compared to most countries in the world, Britain has been extraordinarily tolerant um, towards um, immigrants. And I was curious, after the, um, after the referendum, there were various claims that there was a kind of spate of anti-Polish violence and things, most of which was, it, it's, it, from the, what the police have said, it's not really clear what the situation is. A lot, a lot, uh, there were lots of reports of racially motivated incidents, not all of them necessarily violence, and even they don't, you don't require any evidence to report them, so it's, it's hard to verify. Um, but I couldn't help but think, given you know, my own family's lineage as an Ashkenazi Jew from Poland, that you know, we found Poland to be substantially less tolerant <laughs> than I think any poll could say about the UK today. Mm. It's quite, you know, the, the level of tolerance has been remarkable, considering how hard it is, I think, for people to adjust to very fast changes in their own neighborhood. So I think what um, I think what Nigel Farage gets right about this actually is that it's really a cultural issue rather than an economic one. And no doubt at the bottom end of the wage scale, there is um, wage compression from having free movement of labor from um, countries in Eastern Europe where the average wage is much lower and people willing to live in, say, worse living conditions than, than um, the average Brit would. But there's also a minimum wage in Britain, which is pushing, which is rising, you know, almost year on year now. So, which is ri- raising wages at the bottom of the market. I, I'm, I'm not convinced that it's, that it's really about wages. I, th- I think it's cultural. And the, the, the cultural question is, you know, to what extent do you want to see, um, do you want to feel like a, to, I think, I think there are people who feel like a minority in their own, in, in yeah. the city or the nation. So Brit- Britain's up. not Britain anymore, uh, for, for some people. I suppose Tommy Robinson's an example here. He he would argue that uh, I know he's a controversial figure, but he would argue that Luton is no longer the kind of Luton that he grew up in, or, or that his parents grew up in, because he feels that there's a cultural move in that in that community, which which has changed the the sort of nature of that town. Yeah, I don't know if I would call Tommy Robinson a kind of profound thinker on the subject, <laughs> and he he is a I mean he is a he is a rabble rouser. I mean. Um, and it, I get the impression the English Defence League is is essentially you know football hooligans. But I mean that's yeah. Although I, I, just to stand up for him for a second is that uh, you, it, it, he was part of the English Defence League. In fact, he led it as, as far as I recall. Um, but he did leave the organisation because he felt that they were too far right and that they were essentially bigoted. And I think he was hounded. I can't remember what it, was he hounded out. Was he receiving death threats or something? He he joined an organization called the Quilliam Foundation. I think. No, 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 no. He's he? against the Quilliam Foundation. But he joined them briefly, didn't he? Uh, no, 
no, no. That's uh, Majid Nawaz's. Uh, yeah, I thought I thought he joined them briefly. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, almost positive he didn't. Um, in fact, they're now mortal enemies. But uh, because he stormed their offices recently and mm. and outed their address and everything, but uh, you know, I do, I do think it's 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 fair to say that I think he moved more towards centre uh, from that EDL position, and and you know, it is unfair to. Uh, paint someone with the EDL brush if they w- haven't been part of that movement for seven years or eight years or whatever it is now. Sure. Um, but yes, I, I, he, sure, he's, 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 he's quite a provocateur and he, he does try to piss people off. Uh, just trying to pick up on that sort of sense, you know, from South Africa, we, we would have no idea as, as, you know, you living in the UK would have no idea about some cultural shift in, in Houghton in Johannesburg. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, there's a good book. Um, that's just been uh, published by Douglas Murray. Who yeah, the slow, slow death of Europe, is it? Yeah, strange death of Europe. Death and he, Europe. he he deals with this because um, so there has been widespread immigration to Europe from, and a lot of the people groups that come to Europe are not ashamed about their own cultural identity. And you know why should they be? But at the same time as there has been this mass immigration, Europe itself seems to have be having a crisis of confidence. Um, so the emphasis. Certainly, um, in the last decade, was on multiculturalism, diversity. So there was a sense that, you know, British culture was there was a blank slate. And until we imported all sorts of, um, you know, people from around the world, you know, we didn't have one. And now, now, now there is one. And there was kind of a sense of shame about Britain's past. I think that's part of what people resent because it's, you know, if um, if you walk around, say, Westminster, I think you'd find a lot of people particularly on from on the labor benches who would buy into that kind of narrative wholeheartedly but i mean there's been a sense for a long time even from someone like david cameron that multiculturalism is is bust um it doesn't really work and also that it it undersells it undersells britain you know people have a sense of pride even if not in their own nation in their own in their own culture and in you know previous yeah. achievements and the, well, the general cultural milieu in which they live well, I mean, there's, there's many ways to frame this. Uh, Cameron did have a speech saying multiculturalism is dead or something yeah. to that effect. So did an, an Angela Merkel. Merkel as yeah, well. all of a sudden, and she wants to ban the hijab. All of a sudden, as if, because, because what? Because the voters wanted it. It's odd how these people just pivot on their positions. Um, but the thing about multiculturalism, it's not a question of having a diversity of culture. It's, multiculturalism only seems to happen in predominantly European areas. Or countries. Yes, it doesn't seem to be expected of non-European countries. Indeed, indeed. I, I don't go to Saudi Arabia and try to be a Christian because I know I'll be beheaded because they don't care about multiculturalism or my feelings. Mm. Only the Europeans are expected to care. No, I don't go to Nigeria and try to open up the Huffington Post. Oh, gee, I wouldn't want, even if you paid me, I would never go to Nigeria. Jesus. If you paid me, I wouldn't open up the Huffington yeah, Post. But, but, so, so it's a double standard and you, you hold Europeans up to a much higher standard than anyone else in the world. And then when they, when they uh, rally against the idea, they are proto-fascists. So y- Europeans can't actually win. You can't be <clears throat> a nationalist in the classical sense, a nationalist in Europe. Without being called a bigot, but you must be proud of being a Sikh or a Muslim or a North African. You must be proud of your culture, except if you're European. Yeah, that that seems to be the kind of inconsistent intellectual position of the contemporary right. left, and and it, and it is quite obvious for most people to see. Well, what's interesting is that right? there's, a, there's a book by a um, French thinker called a novelist called Pascal Bruckner called The Tyranny of Guilt. I don't know if you've come across it. No, but he says that um, what's interesting. I I, th- I thought this was a good observation. Um, 
is that uh, if you're a white European on on the left, um, it's not really self hatred. It's it's um, it's self hatred combined with self righteousness. So the more guilty you um, you feel about your own civilization, the more self righteous you can you can be about it. Um, so it's, it's a sense of, a, of original sin. It's kind of displaced. Yeah. Um, well, so that you know, if you if you really believe in original sin, then in a sense you believe that you're a terrible sinner. But in another sense, you believe, well, you know, because you've identified the, it. You've identified it. So at least you're the kind of yeah. you might be the elect. You know, you found doing, you found Jesus. Yeah. So there was a, there was a time when you were doing Christianity right, and you could look down on other people for not for doing it wrongly. And that's been the, the Europeans have taken that into the into the postmodern world. And it's you know the sense of being a sinner makes you makes you righteous. And any European who doesn't consider themselves a sinner is the ultimate um, evil. You you mentioned blank slateism, well the blank slate, but blank slateism is, as it's referred to, which is really applied by the modern left to many many things. So for example, they argue that children are blank slates. Uh, so any child can grow up to be Michael Jordan, for example, yeah. because all children are blank slates and. You just have to kind of add the right ingredients, and yeah. everyone ends up which as is, an which apolitana. is tantamount. I mean, it, it's anti-Darwinist as creationism. Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. It's, Ooh, it's, it's, that, that's a good way to use it. Yes, it, yeah, well, it is. It's, 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 it's anti-science, um, and it, well, everything leads into this. You, you know, the, the the fact that you shouldn't gender your child when they're born mm-hmm. uh, is also blank slateism because it's it's making the assumption that there's no definitive genders. Uh, or even well, the sexes. whole the whole concept of gender, I think, is, is I mean, is what? Well, is is, is part of the same thing. Yeah. I mean, there's if if gender is really a social construct, yes. I don't understand why it mirrors the categories of sex so precisely. <laughs> yes, well, good point. So, um, in terms of in terms of the the blank slateism and 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 how it is applied to culture, uh, it, it would seem that, as you've kind of alluded to. The cultures within Western European countries are kind of seen as uh, must sort of hang back and we start from a new and only the new influx of the good cultures, so to speak, the current popular cultures are, are what we should we should add into our mix. Is that is that a fair, fair assessment? Well, I think um, a lot of people on the kind of on the hard left, on the kind of left that you find on every single university campus – do believe in the destruction of Western culture. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, Britain's often, often got this guilt complex, always given this guilt complex because Britain colonized the entire world, or most of it, essentially, together with France and a, a couple of Dutch colonies. Um, and it was a very large empire at one point. Mm. Uh, and that this all seems to – we it's now meant to have this great guilt, and I suppose in – Having that guilt, uh, and you speak of the original sin, but in having that guilt, it must now say, "Well, we acknowledge that we did all these terrible things, so now you must get to colonize us." Is that is is that kind of what's happening? Yeah, I I, I think there's an element of that. Um, what's curious is that um, I think there's an accusation against Britain, particularly in the American press, which obviously has a it's a whole thing about well, they they don't really want to acknowledge that they were kind of the British. Colonialists, they weren't really. Yeah, I mean, well, they were. But, um, they were a British colony you, who you read kicked the, um, the Brits out. When you read the New York Times about Brexit, they're obsessed with talking about imperialism. You know, the the people who voted for Brexit were big, you know, imperialists, and they were, you know, they're, they're lamenting the fall of empire. I really don't think that if you talk to the average person in one of the places that voted Leave, I don't know, Clacton or Sunderland or something, they really care about 
empire. I think that's, that's totally absurd. I think to certain extent there's an element of, of isolationism. You know, people don't want to be colonized themselves. I don't think that's, that reflects a desperation to go out and, and colonize. So there's kind of, the, See, the, the idea that it, what's, what's interesting is that for the, for the left, empire is a huge thing, but it's not actually mirrored on, you know, what they consider to be the right. I don't, I don't really think there's anyone in Britain who kind of is, is desperate to return to the, to the days of empire. No, I, I wouldn't suggest that at all. Although I would, I would say that communities and nations are more than happy to often be colonized, certainly in, in, the, in modern times in this sort of last century uh, or half a century, are more than happy to be colonized by ideas or things that they think are good. So uh, McDonald's might not be good for you but uh, as a food, but it's colonized, uh, large swathes, and that style of food in terms of fast food, etc., has colonized the, the world. And no one's at any point gone, well, this is terrible – because people have gone, well, that's, we, we want this. Well, some, some um, people equally, you do find kind of, uh, I don't know, what were they called? Pa- paleo conservatives or something who will, who will <laughs> complain about the cultural effects of, of globalization. Yes, Ramon wanted in, to be a paleo conservative at one point. Well, it depends how I identify on the particular week, but nevertheless, sorry, carry on with your. So yeah, pay, I, yes. I, I don't think. I'm just. I. I don't think that it's. It's. In, I mean. I, I think you probably could find people who resent that, but I don't think there's a there's a majority sense yeah, that so, we want McDonald's to disappear. Yeah. What's interesting is even in 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 France, you know, McDonald's is. Um, I think there's more McDonald's in France per capita than in France has been colonized right. by McDonald's. Yeah, Ma- and there and there are people kind of amongst the intellectual classes who who complain about it. But on the other hand, if people didn't want it, then they wouldn't eat there, would they? So no one's forcing you to Well, London's McDonald's, been colonized so. by Apple iPhones. Uh, yeah. it, 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 the, the point I'm getting to really is we have a politician here who uh, recently uh, got in big trouble for saying that the legacy of, of colonialism is, is not always a negative one. So you can take things that, that colonialism leaves behind and you can run with them and you can choose to make something positive out of them. Um, and I... It's, yeah, I, mean, I think you could certainly point to several countries around the world that were British colonies that seem to function pretty well. I mean, Canada, Australia might be the yeah might be the top examples of that. Goodness gracious, we won't we won't dox United you States. because <laughs> there might be riots if you stay in the country well, for it's, long. It's an interesting yeah. point actually that no one's ever raised, which is so if it, but only it only applies it's only valid if they colonize white people and those white no they didn't colonize white people so the Brits colonized australia killed off many aborigines well the right. australians killed off many aborigines right and then and then the brits moved to australia and then they became indigenized or whatever you call it and then they kicked out the empire and became australian and although they never they really did. kicked out the empire they got quite a good link with, with well the with, queen with, is still the head of state exactly yeah. um it's it's just an interesting topic and it's always it, interesting to get someone else's point of view because we're trapped in the middle of these politics mm. which which gets quite intense here uh, and for someone who's an outsider who doesn't have to buy into a lot of the well here we have just a ton of race baiting that goes on around all these things so any topic you mentioned is immediately in reference or immediately referenced towards black versus white or power dynamics uh, which mm. which wouldn't be the same power dynamics in the UK, for example. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the relationship between the kind of general British population and colonialism is. I mean, there was huge opposition to the Iraq War, and I think you know whether it was from people um, on the left who really thought it was a colonial project, or I think people more generally who thought, "Why are we getting involved?" Um, 
I, I suppose there, there has been a shift in that sense that people don't really think we should be getting involved in foreign wars. And I think that's, that, that there's a very, there's very low public support, um, for, uh, what David Cameron called dropping democracy from 10,000 feet or whatever. I mean, whether you could really describe that as a colonial project, I don't, I don't. <laughs> he had some pillars. I, I didn't realize he was, uh, coming up with these cracks. Well, such, you didn't realize he was such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> always has been. So, well, the idiot part, I prefer him to play, if I'm honest. Well, it's marginal, but it's, still. It's, it's hard to tell the difference. It's, it's choosing between gonorrhea and syphilis. Which one do you prefer? Ah, <laughs> uh, so, the anarchist. But now, let, let, let's talk about Muslim immigration in particular. Sure. Right. How are you going to No, no, this? no, because Tommy Robinson was on a podcast and he says... You know, he's actually friends with Muslims, believe it or not. He's got that one Muslim friend that uh, makes him non-Islamophobic. But he he just describes that, <laughs> for example, in Luton where he grew up, the imams in the in the mosques actually commit hate speech on a daily basis, mm. and no one in the uh, council or the local police chief or the newspapers seem to really care for fear of being called racist. Or maybe they don't. Is that quite pervasive? Or I mean, I, I mean, it's Tommy Robinson, and I know he's got his issues. And I, I think I would say that um, what the West considers to be moderate Islam, as kind of the centre ground within world Islam, clearly is not the centre ground within global Islam. I mean, if you look at every Islamic state in the world, whether it's Saudi Arabia or Qatar or Iran, um, yes, or you know, most of North Africa, I mean, these are states that you would say haven't. Islamist ideology underlying them, and yet you know this is the these are these are the world's majority Muslim states. This is where ideology is, is exported from. So I think it, it's hardly surprising that in you know what I guess is you know the provincial parts of the of the Muslim world in in Europe that the same things are being repeated by by preachers there. And I, I'm not sure why the expectation is that somehow you know the center ground is moderate and these people, you know, like all of Saudi Arabia are the fringe. No, the, the moderates are the, are the fringe. I think there has to be some kind of acknowledgement. Well, Majid Nawaz does not represent the average Muslim person. He is on the fringe. The, even people who are... Well, he's very much on the fringe because he's a reformer. But even people who are moderately Muslim and who do like have a little tipple of alcohol despise Majid Nawaz. Um, I think it may well be true that um, the majority of Muslims in Britain are not that ideological. But I think what's definitely false is that the ideology itself, if you were to go to, um, I think, you know, the Finsbury Park Mosque, if you were to go to the Regent's Park Mosque, you know, that you would find moderate ideology there. I mean, you know, Sure. But but they don't seem to be prosecuted for, for speech, right? Well, so, so- I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, they, I mean, they, they've tried, uh, um, there have been several that have tried to deport and then they, it's come to the European Court of Human Rights. It's taken right. forever. So it right. was um, the name Abu Hamza. It. Yeah, hook, hook, hand. He had a hook for a and hand, and right? There was, there was another one as well whose name also escapes me. <laughs> right, right. Because I mean, I think that that is the the underlying problem. There, there appears to be a double standard once again, inconsistency. The police will arrest a white working class Brit for so-called hate speech on Twitter, right? For for saying something quite abhorrent on Twitter. Uh, but they will never go into a mosque and s- arrest the imam for saying kill the Jews. Yeah, certainly um, 
rarely, or maybe it's because I, I don't know what would happen if you actually obtained a recording and you went to the police with yeah. it and what would what well, would follow. But I mean, I, I think it is probably true that it's um, that kind of thing is so pervasive. And certainly, when I think when surveys have been done, the kind of attitudes you find in general right. are you know would be considered pretty racist in any other part of the population. <laughs> Very much so, yes. What is the state of freedom of speech in, in the UK? Um, well, I wouldn't say completely non-existent, but I mean, I mean, I think, I think this is the thing. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure you may agree with it. I'm not sure I necessarily favour prosecution. For, oh, no, I don't either. Because it's, it's, it's very hard to define what, yeah, what, what, what incitement is. Um, but I think, there's, I think there should be honesty about what's going on. Indeed. And there isn't. Or it appears not to be. Honestly. I think with in in England the question of free speech, there there are various things that limit it. I mean, England has some very strict libel laws to the extent that you have what's called libel tourism. I think it's referred to. So people come in order to fight libel cases in the UK because it's easy to win them. The, I think I think the presumption of proof is on the defendant. As in, if you if you make oh, the accusation, if, if you say you libel, you have committed libel against me. Then I you have to prove you have that to you prove didn't. that you didn't, not that you did. Which I is, don't have to prove that you did. I I think that's right. I mean, I'm I'm no lawyer. Yeah. I think that's right. Uh, I think that is correct from based on what I recall from the UK. Uh, okay, let's get a little bit back to Brexit. Um, all of these issues obviously feed in, but we're over a year past uh, past the vote. Mm-hmm. There's. Yeah, Theresa May calls an election which she thinks uh, is a good idea at the time, and then doesn't really campaign, refuses to participate in uh, a debate. Uh, again, is probably the weakest Labour leader in, I don't know, a century. Um, the, uh, I mean, Jerry Cor- Jeremy Corbyn is just horrific. There, there's a cult around him. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. There are many people who like him quite um, scarily. Uh, in in the way that they they are devoted to the man, uh, but I think he he's he, he just is terrible in many many ways. Uh, he's 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 done things, said things, and stands for an ideology which is which would be potentially catastrophic for the UK. Um, and she runs an election and somehow manages to not lose the election. So that's important for people to understand. She still won the election, but she lost many seats, and, and it was a lot closer than it should have been. Mm. Um, and now Brexit negotiations have started. Obviously, look, I'm relying on mainstream media mainly to decipher what's going on. Uh, it seems like it's quite in limbo, and nobody knows really how it's going to work out. So, yeah, so I, where are we? I tend to think that's exaggerated. Um, so it's curious that they say that history is written by – the victors, but I think this is a very clear example of a case where history is written by the losers. losers. Um, so a lot of the print media in the UK and internationally has covered Brexit negatively during the campaign and even more negatively afterwards. But I think the idea that um, Brexit's not going to happen, I think is, um, uh, I think is pretty fanciful. I mean, the basic point is this: Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, which is um which begins the, the two year process of exit you know that that was triggered in march so now that in 19 months time with or without a deal with the european union britain will no longer be part of the european union and you know negotiations are happening on both the exit and future arrangements um which will relate to trade uh um so that all, all sorts of divisions are now being talked about in the cabinet as to what kind of deal 
um, various ministers might want. And it's well known that the majority of MPs are pro-Remain and many cabinet ministers were pro-Remain. Um, but the extent of these divisions seems to have been greatly exaggerated by the mainstream media. So v- virtually all leave ministers yeah. except that, with, that they want a transitional period and all, you know, nominally pro-Remain ministers, except that we are going to leave the customs union and what's called the single market. Mm. Um, so it, it seems actually that Brexit is on track. Now, the um, question is, you know, let's say they come back with a deal which Parliament doesn't like. What happens then? I mean, I think what has to be borne in mind is that one way or the other we're going to leave. So if Parliament rejects the final deal, then that ought to mean that Britain would leave without a deal, which is why I think the idea that Parliament can then turn around and block it, having voted to trigger Article 50... Shouldn't be allowed. I, I, well, I, I don't really see how it would be feasible. Illogical. What as in, they're voting on, they would be voting on a deal. If they reject the deal, we don't stay in the European Union, we leave without one. So yeah. there's, there is no option to remain unless, unless you... I mean, it says explicitly in the treaty, if you want to rejoin, if a nation that has triggered Article 50 wants to rejoin, you have to go through the process Can, in Article 49, which is basically the whole process the new nation would need to join. Uh, maybe it's far more complex than I understand, but why do, we, why do you need a deal? Why can't um, uh, you know, individuals or co- companies uh, just do their own deals with other individuals and companies in Europe? Why... Does your government need to structure a deal for you? Yeah, I, I think there's an argument against managed trade. Um, but the the hope is to maintain tariff-free access to European markets, um, both for British exports and for imports from the EU, partly because supply chains for manufacturing goods are pan-European. Um, so if you're paying tariffs on every single component that went into a car that's manufactured in Sunderland, in Nissan, then you know that car would become... And there would be all sorts of paperwork around it. There's also the customs arrangements. Um, you'd want some kind of customs deal with the European Union that makes trade easier. But it, it's essentially an administrative question. And um, we would be trading, if not through a particular special arrangement with the EU, and Britain will retake its seat at the World Trade Organization, then we would trade under what are called WTO rules, which is what Europe does with the United States. And, you know, you mentioned iPhones, plenty of iPhones in the UK yeah. come, come into the UK via <laughs> WTO rules. This is not impossible. There will be some kind of administrative teething problems because, you mm. know, you can't expect the government bureaucracies to get this right when they get everything else wrong. But, I mean, this is not an argument against the process. I'm just trying to think of uh, another scenario where the media have kind of been unfair and reported things completely always negatively. Uh it, it, is it only Brexit, Ramon? Yes, <laughs> I think so. And, um, and and the entire president of the United States right. and his entire administration. Right. I mean, well, as I think Mark Twain said, if you what, if you if you don't read the news, you're uninformed. If you do read the news, you're misinformed. Mm. I think was it Twain? I can't. Uh, just say it's Twain. He said everything uh, poetic and it was, it was a white man. It's all that matters. But nevertheless, uh, Simon, one last question from me. UKIP imploded at the 2017 general election. Well, yes. I think it imploded. I mean, it didn't. It wasn't at all popular. Well, the two main parties consolidated their share of the vote to a greater proportion than has happened in, in say, recent memory. Right. So, <clears throat> why is that? Is it just the case that UKIP was a, a one-issue party and that issue has... Has been yeah, I think, out, I think that's then... part of it. I think people who are pro-leave broadly put their faith in, in Theresa May. 
And there are also some ex-UKIPers um, who had started out in the Labour Party and returned to it because maybe Corbyn is an anti-establishment figure. And also, you know, what's curious is that Farage is an open, say, libertarian, Thatcherite, certainly um, maybe the, the, he didn't focus so much on that in recent years, but he, you know, he never really shied away from from that on the on the economic side. And yet, you know, a lot of the kind of working class voters for UKIP, I think, weren't willing to accept that, but weren't really on the same page with him on on the economic stuff. Um, I, I do think, you know, if the Conservative Party or the Labour Party don't deal with the with say immigration issue or the various issues that you could campaign on if brexit were softened um you know and another party will come to fill ukip's place um i think the idea that this uh temporary snapshot where the two main parties have, have returned kind of with a vengeance is going to be the permanent state of affairs is is premature i think but politics looks very very fluid at the moment the next election if it if it does happen in 2022 if this government manages to survive and get through brexit will be fought on very different issues and it would be fought actually on government having much more freedom to decide how the country is run and all all sorts of things could could come into that campaign but i i I do think you know there are good things and bad things that could be said about ukip i think people may come to miss it because it was you know it did um it managed to articulate certainly for a time um an argument about sovereignty and even about immigration which was nonetheless framed within a libertarian context, which managed to destroy the British National Party, which is a fascist party, and it's sh- share in the polls. And if another party comes to replace UKIP on those issues, I think it's highly likely that it will be far less liberal, you know, in, 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 a, in a classical sense, than UKIP was. So actually, even people on the um, people on the left might come to miss it. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I, I will miss about UKIP, but he's been gone for a while, is is a chap called Godfrey Bloom. Oh, I'm unfamiliar. Yeah, he was um, he was quite a character, fascinating yeah. character. He 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 used to quote uh, Murray Rothbard like a full anarchist <laughs> in, in the EU Commission. I think it was the, or the EU Council, whatever it's called, the Parliament. Council. I don't know. It's, it's like, it sounds like Star Trek half the time. The council and this and that, and who knows what. Yeah, he was he was an M- MEP for quite some time. Yes, yeah. So and also Nigel Farage. Um, I apologise. Oh, was he? Yeah. Was he? So, <laughs> so if you are listening, go YouTube. Godfrey Bloom, a fascinating orator. Perfect. And you need to learn the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. May the force be with you, Spock. I think <laughs> is, that, is that the correct one? Yeah, that's it. So it's the end of Ramon for today. I don't read. I don't watch. Char- children's movies because i'm an adult <laughs> right um uh, you may leave suggestions on how we should deal with ramon for this blasphemy um ramon final words yes uh, come join forever. our france crenier <laughs> forever our france crenier presentation <laughs> on the 17th of august uh seats are very limited at the moment quite a we have a almost a full house so obviously we'll, we'll tweet and whatever the case might be but if you want to know what type of country South Africa will be in by 2030 and you want to you know have some strategy around that come join us it's 500 bucks but there's thousands of rands worth of information yeah absolutely uh, well worth coming to you can email us renegade report mailbox at gmail.com as always you can find us on twitter at renegade underscore report and on facebook Simon how can we find you um, that's a good question do you want um, to be found uh, I write occasionally for a publication called Comment Central. Um, so if you if you Google that, then there's a series of articles I've written. That might that might be the best way. 
Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank thanks you. For, thanks for coming in on your short trip to the country. I hope you enjoy it. Have you been here before? Never, so it's my yeah, first oh, time well, in Africa. Well, well, enjoy it. Enjoy it. I hope it's uh, hope it's a great time and uh, it's a lovely place, so you, there's no reason you, you won't. Uh, that's it for the week. Thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, just final apologies to our Alaskan uh, listener who we insulted last week, who has now threatened to bankrupt the podcast by making us send him his mug all the way to Alaska, which we know really isn't on this planet. Uh, we do apologize to him, and thank you for listening. Cheers. Goodbye. This is cliffcentral.com.